0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu.
2: And I'm Alex Diamond.
0: And we are the hosts of this special series.
2: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
0: These conversations center the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
2: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
0: Please visit our website, Marginalia at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute of Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: And so we begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia. A special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Anavarapu, and today I have the pleasure of being in conversation with Dr. Katerina Fugazola. Dr. Fugazola is an Earl S. Johnson instructor in sociology at the University of Chicago, where she also received her PhD in 2019. Dr. Fugazola's general interests include social movements, gender and sexuality studies, transnational sociology, and qualitative research methods. Her current book project is an ethnographic study of sexual identity organizing in the People's Republic of China and examines strategies for social change in a political context that precludes avenues for direct political engagement. Hi, Kate, as I know her, and uh, welcome to this episode of Ethnographic Marginalia. Having been a huge fan of your work for a long while now, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Hey, it's
1: lovely to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like I said, it's our pleasure. And uh, for those of uh, you who are listening, uh, Ethnographic Marginalia, as you must already be aware, is our website that uh, highlights ethnographic practice. And Kate Fugazola is one of the members of our awesome advisory board. Do check out our website for more information. Um, But uh, apart from that little pitch, (laughs) Kate, I just wanted to start out with asking you a little bit about how you became a sociologist and what drew you to ethnographic methods in particular.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I actually resisted the label of sociologist for quite some time. Um, And in part, that's because it took me a long time to figure out really what sociology is. Um, I ended up in a sociology program almost by chance because my whole trajectory up until the moment that I applied to doctoral programs was in other fields. Mm -hmm. So I I started out studying East Asian languages and cultures for my BA in Italy. Um, And then I moved to San Francisco and I did a master's in Asia Pacific studies. And throughout all the time, like, my focus has always been on China. My entry point was really the language. That's what I fell in love with. Um, But then my shift from East Asian Studies to Sociology was one of those serendipitous things. Um, At the University of San Francisco, I worked closely with Professor Dorothy Kidd. She's a professor in communications in the Media Studies Department. And it had nothing to do with my master's that I was doing at the time. But then, of course, it seemed interesting. So what I did is I basically walked into my office and announced. And I asked her if she would have me in class. And thankfully, she's a very nice person. And she said yes. (laughs) Uh, And that was my first time being exposed to something that was a completely different way to study language and communication. And that was a way that was more focused on the social elements and on language in action. So I started getting interested in social movements um, and social movement theory, and then in the communicative aspects of activism. Um, And this was in 2010. That year, there were a lot of protests happening at Foxconn factories in China. So I started working on that. And I developed this project on mobile communication strategies in the context of the labor movement in China. And -hmm. I wanted to continue working on that. And I wanted to know more about social movements. And I wanted to know, uh, and to go on with my graduate studies to actually have the time to go to China and spend time with activists. Um, And then my brilliant mentors intervened, and they were like, yeah, I think you may (laughs) want to apply to sociology programs. So Mm -hmm. I did. Um, So before I knew it, I became a sociologist. And Ethnographic methods, well, it, it turns out that ethnography was kind of the thing that I had always wanted to do, even before I knew what ethnography meant. Right. Um, and that's because of the focus and fascination has always been on language, uh, mm-hmm. so on the nuances and on the cultural subtleties. And those are things that require that kind of embeddedness that that only ethnography can, can give you.
0: hmm that's so interesting. And I feel like,
1: uh, you know, what you said about not knowing what sociology
0: is, is something that I also share. Um, and we've talked about this a lot. And um, yeah, sometimes I wonder, maybe ethnography offers that kind of flexibility, you know, of like borrowing from different disciplines. And uh, I, I mean, I, I can relate a lot to what you're saying about uh, just being interested in Figuring out or interpreting culture in that sense, right? Like in a particular context. So yeah, that's a really, yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, your research in general, and maybe how you started uh, doing research on LGBT organizing in China? Like, what exactly drew you to this particular project? I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, so as I mentioned, like my the beginning of my doctoral studies was with a project that was on the labor movement in China. But then Mm -hmm. I started a PhD program and uh, very quickly it became evident to me that approaching that ethnographically would have required a kind of access that I was not likely to get in the few years in the program. Um, Mm -hmm. I am a white woman who only speaks standard Mandarin and I do not understand any other Chinese dialects. So the idea of gaining access to a factory and to Mm -hmm. politically active workers during a very contentious time, it really seemed very far fetched. And not to mention, it was very potentially dangerous for my hypothetical participants. So I tabled Mm -hmm. that project. um, And to distract myself from this disappointment, I decided to dive headfirst into something that was a lot closer to home. Um, And Mm -hmm. I worked for about a year on a project on LGBT organizing in Italy. Um, And that is a community that is close to my heart because I'm part of it. Um, And Mm -hmm. the project was my perfect excuse to gain more exposure to all these linguistic approaches to social movement theory um, while experimenting with all these methods like rhetorical and discursive analysis. Mm -hmm. And then as the project came to a close, I was chatting with a friend um, and jokingly I said, I love studying LGBT organizing, but I really miss my China work. And Mm -hmm. he looked at me. And he said, well, Kate, why don't you do something on LGBT organizing in China then? And I had the moment of like, wait, I know nothing of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I I had zero exposure to that topic. I had no clue about what was going on in China on the LGBT front. So I literally, I ran home and I started this frantic (laughs) Google JSTOR library Weibo search. (laughs) Uh, And then the more I learned, the more I really wanted to know. And one thing led to another until it ended up being my dissertation topic. And mm-hmm. it, it was one of those things where I kept reading things and, and everything seemed to click. Uh, and mm. it, it, just, it was clear that language and, and language play was at the very heart of what LGBT organizations were doing in China. It was this mm-hmm. just constant walking on the tightrope with groups that were striving for political change while very carefully phrasing the work in order not to sound, po- to sound political.
2: Mm-hmm. And there was mm-hmm. so
1: much that was happening transnationally in multiple languages languages. And um, there was a kind of resistance against this shallow adaptation of of language and discourses that were developed in English-speaking countries. And this resonated strongly with me because it's something that I see happen in the Italian LGBT movement too. So I, I just completely fell in love with the project and I continued doing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So how was it like to do research in the PRC as someone who's not from China? How did you uh, go about building contacts and uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it, it's uh, like, if you know me, like I got very excited about this project. So I had to stop <laughs> myself for a second and be like, okay, think Kate, okay, like how is this practically going to work? Cause I was right. very aware of the difficulties and like all the potential obstacles that I would encounter um, in part, because I knew that I would be a very visible outsider in the field and but since I knew nothing of, of about those groups, like I had no personal experience of them yet. Um, so I had no sense whether they would be welcoming or wary of me as a researcher. So I, for once, decided to take things slow. Um, mm-hmm. And the first thing I did <laughs> while I was still in Chicago was to try and map out the organizational environment. So mm-hmm. thankfully, technology came to the rescue because so much organizing and community building was happening online. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I or identified the key organizations that were active in China and I started following them on WeChat um, and I became familiar with the work, with their activities. And then I started planning a preliminary phase of research before fieldwork. Uh, and that was in the fall of 2016. So I took a job as a teaching assistant at the University of Chicago Beijing Center, which mm-hmm. gave me three months of time to figure out whether I could make enough contacts and connections to actually conduct an ethnography the following summer. Mm -hmm. So before I left for China, I just cast a very wide net. I contacted pretty much every organization that I had on WeChat. I sent emails, I sent messages, I filled out contact forms. And I was surprised because to to my surprise, I received quite a lot of very encouraging replies. So I Mm. scheduled meetings in six cities across China. um, And one of those meetings proved to be absolutely key to everything that happened later on. Because early on, I went to Guangzhou uh, and I met with the founder of the largest LGBT organization in China. And mm-hmm. it was one of the most encouraging meetings I could ever have asked for, uh, because at the end of our chat, we exchanged our WeChat contacts. And he told me, listen, I know you're going around China, you're visiting various cities. When you get to a new place, let me know where you are, and I will immediately put you in touch with our volunteers there. Wow. And it, so that was basically ethnographic jackpot because yeah. this organization has the small volunteer groups in cities all over the country. So from one yeah. day to the next, I found myself connected to hundreds and hundreds of organizers. And because the person doing all these introductions is so well-known and well-respected within the community, mm-hmm. I basically was getting a stamp of approval in most places. Mm-hmm. Um, and then aside from this, which was just complete luck, Um, there were some very fascinating cultural dynamics that were happening uh, because as ethnographers do, I had to figure out which ones of my identities put my participants at ease, which ones Mm -hmm. did not. Um, And I did expect that my identity as a queer woman was going to help build rapport, and it did. But Mm -hmm. what was the most interesting to me is that it was the combination of being queer, being Lala and being Italian (laughs) as Mm. being one of the things that put people most at ease. And that was a lot more than my affiliation with the U.S. University. So whenever Mm -hmm. I revealed that I was from Italy, there was just this immediate (laughs) cultural recognition and overall just like a lot of warmth and familiarity, particularly in interactions with older participants who were around my parents' age. Um, Mm -hmm. So the conversation just immediately went towards family, traditions, food, the importance of culture. And then people had all these questions about Italian cultures and acceptance of LGBT youth. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was married at the time, so I got a lot of questions on same-sex marriage in Italy. And it was just like two fantastic conversations. So that mm-hmm. was my introduction from that point on when I realized it. Immediately, I was like, hi, I'm Kate. I'm an Italian Lala. And that mm-hmm. was the beginning of all my conversations. Uh, uh, for maybe for those who are unfamiliar with the term, what is Lala? Oh, Lala is, is a Chinese term for lesbians. Right. Okay.
0: Uh, but I think you'd mentioned something about how uh, coming from a U.S. university worked against uh, against that reputation to some extent. Uh, is there any specific instance that comes to mind uh, as to when you, being from University of Chicago, maybe turned some
1: interlocutors off? It was mostly just in the, in the attitudes um, that mm-hmm. I, so the, my first introduction is because I was trying to be like with my best research self because I was trying to like have some sort of, you know, like look, not like an idiot all the time in the field. So I would introduce (laughs) myself with like, hi, I am a doctoral student at the university of Chicago. And people would just like look me up and down and be like, Hmm, so what are you doing here? And why do you want to study us? And then immediately it was like, yeah, you know, I'm from Italy. And that, that was a a sudden switch. Like you could see people Mm. smiling and just relaxing, like their whole body language changed. And we're like, Oh, you're not, you're not really American. That's fine. (laughs) then." Yeah. That's really interesting.
0: And I think, um, at least in, during my fieldwork, the U.S. element actually worked to to a large extent to my advantage because I was doing fieldwork in India, and in, particularly in a city where being like going to the U.S. is like it's like the Indian dream in mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, so yeah, it's it's so interesting that uh, there are all, all these different, of course, valences uh, uh, with institutional affiliation during fieldwork. I'm also a little curious about. What like your day to day looked like when you were doing field work i guess in terms of the kinds of logistical negotiations um that I think that are very particular to each person's ethnographic field work like how what what did a typical day i guess uh doing field work look like
1: oh yeah well, I mean I had like a field work in different cities so and then I had the my my dream field work at some point it was four days on on a cruise ship that i'm happy to talk about later but in general when i was in the city i would wake up early um have fantastic food for breakfast um and then (laughs) immediately go to either a volunteer group or go to one of the sometimes they they had like physical bases like offices that they rented out um, and i would Mm -hmm. spend some time there and there was was always so much going on all the time that i would just sit back help however i could help organize help set up chairs Um, try and figure out what was going on. Sometimes they had like live streams going on. And so whenever I was present, if there was a video thing, I would always be there with like, hi, here's someone from Italy also interested in, in LGBT groups in China. Um, Mm -hmm. so a lot of it was just being present, um a lot of my conversations, like some of the best conversations I've had happened around food. Um, mm-hmm. Very unsurprising for an Italian, but that's uh, <laughs> that was the thing, right? Be around when people relax, um, be around when they work, but also be around in the off moments. So that was, yeah. that was the key for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and since you brought it up, um, this was uh, an actual question in the little guide that I have in front of me, but uh, you did ethnographic observations on a cruise ship in the summer of 2017, and I know that uh, there was something uh, political also that was important in the summer of 2017. So could you tell us a little bit about the cruise, but also the context of uh, the cruise happening and your yeah. own fieldwork? Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, so it's, I, I always talk about this saying that I, I got to leave an ethnographer's dream because I was stuck <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the ocean for four days with 800 potential participants that had nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. So, and oh, that sounds pretty scary right now, though, uh, considering the died. pandemic. Oh, but <laughs> yes, I know. Like I did, it, it, it damn COVID changed my perception of cruises. But that was yeah. incredible uh, to yeah. be there, and it was just again a stroke of luck that was born out of those months of preliminary research in 2016. Because at the time, one of the volunteers that I spoke with told me about this really exciting event that was being planned at the time, um, mm-hmm. and it was with this organization that was going to be celebrating their 10th anniversary, Um, every year they have like this Kentan Hui, this national conference, and 2017 was going to be the 10th anniversary. And they wanted to Mm -hmm. do things in style to celebrate that. Um, So they decided to have this huge meeting on a cruise ship that was traveling from Shanghai to Fukuoka, Japan, and then back. And -hmm. as soon as I heard this, I knew that I had to do everything in my power to get a ticket. And it took me a bit of work and a lot of help from volunteer friends to actually finalize the booking, but then it Mm -hmm. happened. Um, and for these four days, the, the cruise ship was packed with activities, uh, including the very first symbolic collective same-sex wedding that was organized by an LGBT group uh, in the PRC. And we were we were technically in no man's land, really, because we were in the middle of the ocean. But the the symbolic significance of the event was huge, um, and the whole cruise ship, like if as I think back to it it just it feels like a fever dream because there were things <laughs> going on like quite literally 24 7 so I was frantically moving up and down the ship from event to event doing interviews <laughs> chatting with people having lunch with volunteers and then rushing back into my cabin to furiously type down notes and thoughts okay. uh, like my fuel notes for those four days are just this mess of writings and sketches and audio notes on multiple devices and photographs and videos. It was fantastic. Just like one of the most exhausting experiences of my life, but incredible. Yeah. Um,
0: And I remember we were a part of um, a little group, like a support group almost when we were in the field. And I remember those four days pretty vividly because you were like texting us, telling us all about what was happening, but you were also really, really busy, but in this energizing way I guess like the kind of busy that uh, that ethnographers really
1: like want in the field yes. you know like a lot absolutely. of absolutely it's the kind of exhaustion that like ethnographers really live for even though like it's it's draining because it's mentally draining for me like one thing that I did not expect is how, like how physically draining it would be to just speak a foreign language yeah. <laughs> for the whole day like my jaw hurt <laughs> like, it yeah, was yeah. it was kind of like that and my brain hurt uh, but again, like, I, I feel incredibly blessed to, to have been able to do that. So,
0: yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Could you, could you take pictures and stuff on the cruise? Was there, um, like, did you have the kind of permission to do stuff like that? Or was it more I like, So there, and, w- yeah.
1: there was one moment that was during the, um, the wedding ceremony. Um, that was actually something that, that no one had prepared anyone else for. So that was a complete surprise. So before the wedding ceremony, was about to happen there was just a big announcement out of nowhere saying like no photographs are permitted now mm. uh, only like two people that were authorized to do that so we had to quickly put all recording devices away and we had to move because we were inside the ship at the time and we had mm-hmm. to move outside on the docks because the cruise ship um, did not want any photographs linked to the the actual the actual ship, the inside of the ship where it would, would be recognizable. Um, so mm. we were literally like in this liminal space, like we were both in the middle of the ocean. So we were neither in China nor in Japan at the time. And mm. we were not inside a space where it was just like sea and it was night. So all dark around us, it was just this incredible situation that we were in. So that was the time where I, I was not allowed to make recordings for everything yeah. else that were very gracious and they, they did allow recordings. I tried to take audio recordings more than video because, uh, that way if things changed in China, um, because things could change like very quickly. Um, but I didn't want to have any faces and, and voices linked, uh, in my data. Yeah. No, that, that sounds like
0: really good practice and something that I think many of us should really think about, um, especially because, yeah, uh, with data leaks and all of that stuff uh, becoming more and more common yeah Um, so you know I know that you employ discourse analysis of online spaces as part of your research Um, I also know that you have been teaching a very popular digital ethnography course at the University of Chicago and uh, in the context of the pandemic this approach has suddenly become very popular it's become you know like the need of the hour to think about digital ethnography because fieldwork has become like you know uh, a dream for many students right now Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah like you and I were just talking about this before we started the podcast but I guess you started thinking about online spaces way before like now Um, so how and why did you start thinking about online spaces as sites of research and uh, I guess
1: how do you approach them ethnographically? Yeah, so it is something that I've been I've been thinking about, especially these days. Um, But online spaces were were vital for my project. Uh, And and in multiple ways, my first field was really a digital one. Um, Mm -hmm. And this was, again, like pre-pandemic. And I never thought of this as being an online or digital ethnography because that's, like, that's a term and a method that at the time was very much frowned upon. Um, mm-hmm. But essentially, that's what I was doing, because I would log on and spend considerable amounts of time just observing users and communities interacting in online spaces and coming together as a community online. Um, mm-hmm. And at first, I was just an observer. And then once I started my physical fieldwork, I became more active in these online spaces as well. Um, But again, I never really thought about it in 2017 as being in the field, Um, not in those terms, because in part, like part of the resistance that is put up by sociologists against Mm -hmm. these digital methods as real ethnography is that like the idea of, well that's not an ethnography. That is a content analysis. You're just reading things mm-hmm. online. Um, in right. my particular case, I can see how I was actually walking that line because my fieldwork was primarily physical. And then a lot mm-hmm. of the online analysis that I ended up doing, uh, was it took the form of a content analysis of published articles. Mm-hmm. But then saying that on, all online discursive analysis is content analysis, I think it's it's both misguided and misleading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that was the part that led me to put together this course on digital ethnography because on the ethnography front and the things that this pandemic has forced us all to realize is that it is absolutely possible to treat online words as field sites. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And Let's note also that this is something that anthropologists who work on digital spaces have been screaming about for years. And it's not <laughs> sociologists that are a bit late to the game here, so we have to give that to them. Um, yeah. But I think like part of the resistance to the idea of online ethnography, it, it came from this misconception, this like misimagination of the work, right? this weird imagining of a researcher opening a web page, pushing a button to download content, and then reading, taking notes, and calling it a day but Hmm. digital ethnography is so much more because I mean, ethnography is about being there. Right. Um, Right. And, and the thing is you can be there when you're online. Right. And this Mm -hmm. pandemic proved it like we are there for each other. Um, And we we have found ways to overcome so many of the obstacles that 2020 has thrown at us. Mm -hmm. So the question now becomes, okay, how do we study these new spaces ethnographically? Um, Mm -hmm. And the answer is we find ways to be there. So we log <laughs> on. We we see conversations that are happening in real time. We participate in conversations that are happening through chats, through forums, through Zoom calls, through TikTok videos. And mm-hmm. it's not an easy field to navigate because one, it can be overwhelming. Um, sometimes the physical distance can make it harder to establish that initial trust that is so vital mm-hmm. to success in the field. And I think we should also be cautious and look at the exclusions that this field might end up reinforcing because Mm -hmm. the idea that everyone is online and digitally connected is just not true. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is also a field that has so much to offer in terms of affordances, right? So just think of the ability to revisit the text-based conversations that you're having. You can Mm -hmm. screenshot or record things happening on a screen in real time. You can observe like the spontaneous conversation that are happening within the community on a scale that would be impossible to capture in a physical field site. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I personally just love the, the versatility of digital communication tools. It's just, it, it is literally a world of possibilities. You can do so much with the online world these days.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like the way you're framing it and that much of the discourse, as soon as um, the pandemic became uh, a visceral reality for academics, like much of it was just like disdain or like stress or, uh, you know, just uh and uh highlighting of limitations that this moment poses for ethnography but mm-hmm. thinking about the advantages i think is always important uh not to not to uh, downplay the real challenges of the time that we are in but just to i guess offer a way out um and on that note i think i was wondering what is the one piece of advice that you would give to those starting ethnographic fieldwork around this time. Um, And really, like I know people whose proposals have had to be reshaped in light of uh, what's happened. Um, So I guess I'm thinking about grad students at the cusp of fieldwork who couldn't actually do fieldwork the way they were supposed to do it. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in, in line with what I was saying about the affordances of digital fieldwork, like one thing that I have to say is don't get discouraged. Um, I mean, take time to to really grieve your project because it's going to change. Like, it's not going to be the same thing that you envisioned probably, but then breathe and look around you because just because we're physically distant, it, it doesn't mean that we have stopped Creating communities—it's—it's um, mm-hmm. it's actually one of the reasons why I have like this deep dislike for the terminology of social distancing, because we're right. really not growing socially distanced We are not. Like, yes, we're physically distant, absolutely, and please let's keep it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that no cruise ships right now, right? No, 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 exactly. Um, but the fact that we are physically distant, it has not stopped the social connections from happening. Uh, and these yeah. conversations are happening and communities are forming. They're finding new ways to be together. Uh, so we do need your ethnographic eyes and we need your insights to see this. And we need you to do these projects to shed light on all that is happening. So please mm-hmm. don't get discouraged. Uh, be safe and just dive in. You have fantastic digital fields in front of you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's great. Was there any particular... project from the class that you taught uh, just now that uh, that you thought was you know like interesting or like maybe a bunch of projects that your students did that you know like made you feel like aha, there's
1: something here to to get to dive deeper into oh yeah i had i had some fantastic projects like uh, Mm -hmm. all of them were great there were some um like some projects that just one comes to mind is is one that was on uh, mental health communities which mm-hmm. I thought was fascinating because it was the idea of creating a community online where mental health professionals would go, in which the mm-hmm. ultimate goal was to get people out of the, of the digital field and be like, you now need to go and talk to someone that is offline. Because these mm-hmm. were professionals that were working offline. It was great because it was just this, this interaction of, I want to create a welcoming community that helps you get the support that you need but also you need support that is not in a digital community um, Mm -hmm. because not everyone in that digital community was a professional. So that I thought that was fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. There was another project on um, murder podcasts uh, and on the fascination (laughs) with real crime podcasts. uh, That was also so great, especially in the context of um, recent racial discussions, because the, the student was doing research in the field that was, uh, a podcast predomin- predominantly followed by white women um, mm-hmm. and avoiding so much of racial discussions of like keeping the fascination alive with real crime stories, but then also trying to avoid reach, like any racial discussion, which proved to be impossible. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that was like a fantastically deep and, and like, rich dynamic to explore in that project. Um, mm-hmm. but so many of my students are doing such cool projects. Like they just make me want to dive back into the digital field. Like if I could just pursue 5,000 projects at a time, I would.
0: That <laughs> really, I mean, I, your enthusiasm is so contagious and I myself am teaching a class on digital ethnography in the coming term. And I was very nervous about it, but having heard you speak so convincingly and so excitedly about this particular form of social inquiry, even I'm pretty excited now to teach the class. So I'm going to keep borrowing this enthusiasm from you in the coming One. weeks.
1: <laughs> One of these days, I will make a gamer out of you. I promise.
0: Oh my God. I yeah, just uh, have with no idea what I'm going to do when it comes to gaming and ethnography, but um, maybe I'll just invite you to be a special guest for that particular class.
1: Absolutely. Um, Any time.
0: <laughs> uh well you know just to go back to your to your research in uh, in the prc i was uh wondering a little bit about uh whether there were there was any one well one pleasurable moment in the field which i think maybe is the cruise ship so i don't want to ask you <laughs> about this again but was there like one encounter that was a bit you know like embarrassing or startling or yeah, maybe if you could share a moment that was embarrassing from the field along with a moment that was maybe a bit nerve wracking and scary and how you dealt with both of these moments.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I can start like, so let me start with, uh, with the scary one so that I end up on the embarrassing one that's going to be uh-huh. a lot more fun for people to listen to. Um, right. The scary one was one when I realized that I was getting into deep and getting too excited about the research and forgetting about the people in a sense um, mm-hmm. because I I had just arrived in Guangzhou and it was a moment in which the government had just um, turned up surveillance a little bit. So there was the, like a big crackdown on VPNs um, and that, which is like the thing people used to get around the the firewall. Um, mm-hmm. So there were things going on politically. So the situation was getting a little bit scarier in that sense. I was still like, I was always very safe in the field and no one really cared about what I was doing. Um, but I remember I had an interview planned with uh, some members of a, of a feminist group and I got in Guangzhou and the, through the various messages, they were like, we can't do that because uh, police has uh, come into the apartment and they are just uh, racking havoc over there. And we're not really sure what was happening. And I had this moment in which my reaction was, this is so exciting. And then I'm like, wait, no, I've become a psychopath. What is this? Why am I excited? (laughs) Um, And, but it was like a split second, but really just, Mm -hmm. it took me out of it. Like, because I was like, no, I should not be excited about this. Like, I don't care if it's good research. Also, it turned out not to be good research because immediately I was like, I need to, I need to stop pursuing this because I'm at risk exposing people. I am very visible here. Um, mm-hmm. So, but that was that was a scary moment. Um, it, it ended up in nothing, so everyone was safe, There were no arrests made. It was just a, a little bit of a of a scare for people involved. Um, but that was it. And it was also like I, I remember texting one of my advisors and saying like sounding a little bit too excited. And the reply that I got was like Yeah, but be safe. Try not to get in harm's mm-hmm. way. And I'm like Oh, right. Yes, that's true. There's like a, there's the whole thing that I should consider here. Um, that is not just about the excitement of the research. So, Yeah. And was that the embarrassing? Uh... The embarrassing thing is <laughs> fine. All right. So let me share this one that sneaks up on me every now and then just makes me want to curl up in a ball of cringe. So <laughs> just one night, um, I joined this informal gathering of Lala's in a bar in Guangzhou. Um, mm-hmm. So and as it often happens at these events, we started playing a game um, the game involved like a pack of cards and there are various roles that are assigned depending on which card one gets. So mm-hmm. someone is always made king and then the king can order other participants to do things, usually like in a pair. Um, so someone is the subject and someone is something else. Um, mm-hmm. So this was a game that had appeared in various forms in many other gatherings that I had attended. And it was particularly like used as a way to playfully explore same-sex desires and intimacy. So like the Mm -hmm. typical order from the king would be person A has to sit on the lap of person B for a turn or person A has to kiss someone on the cheek, uh, something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But the king at the point had declared that the subject should sing a song to someone. And that Mm -hmm. statement immediately sent me into a panic because (laughs) I have the musical talents of an IKEA bookshelf and the idea of singing in front of anyone basically just makes me dizzy with embarrassment. But Um, here I am. I'm in the field. I'm trying to play cool, and of course, I end up being the designated singer, right? And and my bro- my brain just stops working. And out of all the things that it could have sang. I ended up like belting at a disproportionately high volume the chorus (laughs) from Taylor Swift's We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. (laughs) And this choice was met with just a stunned silence for what felt like an eternity. Um, And then someone thankfully laughed and said, hmm. And not choice for a serenade. And I realized that I was supposed to dedicate a romantic song to someone. Oh and had instead been serenading this poor victim of this game with a very obvious breakup song. So wow. no one in the group asked me to sing anything after that. So that was great. But yeah, <laughs> that's my moment. Please tell me this is
0: making it to your book.
1: Because no, it really that has it, to. That needs to be erased <laughs> from memory. <laughs> It has to be the opening vignette, you know, like this. This is it. (laughs) No, that, oh, I'm literally cringing in my chair right now just thinking about it. But I mean,
0: I feel very honored that you were
1: willing to share this with us
0: uh, because this is exactly what we are trying to gather these sorts of moments that uh, I guess don't make it to the book um, because they're either too cringe or too scary. (laughs) But, you know, thanks. Thanks for being candid. I really appreciate it. Um, So, well, I know this is a very dreaded question to ask you, especially because I know that you're writing your book manuscript right now. And um, I have so many questions about that, but I don't want to bore you with it. Because (laughs) as someone who has to now start conceptualizing a book proposal, I have no idea how one transitions from a dissertation to a book project, but this isn't the podcast for that. But I'll just like wish you luck for it. Uh, but I was also curious that along with writing your book manuscript, I'm sure you're thinking about some kind of like a second project or a future project. Um, so, do you have um, an idea of what you want to do next, uh, or maybe some broad contours about that?
1: I do. I have. I mean, I have too many ideas. That that is part of the problem. So, um, <laughs> I'm trying to stop myself from actually pursuing them actively because I I need I have edits on the book to make and sent to mm-hmm. reviewers by the end of the summer. So that will be my priority. But then I have like two things. One that is more connected to this first book. So mm-hmm. one project is about um, um, a transnational LALA organization that has ceased to exist, sadly, a couple of years ago. But it was the only organization working across China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just this network of organization that um, for multiple reasons ended up having to be disbanded. Um, But they were working on so many cool projects, including like an oral history of older Lalas. So Mm -hmm. in part, I would like to talk to them um, and figure out like just have a history of the the organization really and all that they were doing and what happened and why they ended up not making it. So that Mm -hmm. is one project. Um, The other one, has to do with gaming, which is, I'm trying to resist doing that because it sounds a lot more exciting than what I have to do. Um, but I would love to do work on um, LGBT identities in gaming. Uh, there are some games that are being developed right now in China that have to do with the experience of coming out um, to your family while mm-hmm. living in China. So that feels like an exciting thing to pursue. Um, mm
2: mm-hmm.
1: But again, I'm trying not to dive too deep into it because the second I do, I'm going to forget about the book that I have to edit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just, just to, uh, because I'm curious personally, would the gaming project be something that you would, uh, would it be an ethnography of, uh, of the game as such, or would you be talking to the makers of the, of the game, or would it be like a multi-sided uh, ethnographic
1: project? It would definitely be like a, a digital exploration of both the game itself, um, mm-hmm. but also in particular, like at the communities that are forming to discuss the game. Um, so right. the idea of like, what is the game supposed to be doing? And what are the reactions that people have? Because part part of the idea is to elicit discussion on what is going on uh, and mm. how people from different provinces and from different situations in life may experience um the the idea of telling their parents about their sexual identity. So I, I think I would be interested in the community around the game more than the game itself. Um, mm-hmm. But then it really depends. Like if they were, like, I don't think there's an RPG being made around that topic. If there ever is, that's it. Um, that's the end of everything else that I'm doing and building a profile. <laughs> and I will be in my digital field for the rest of my life.
0: Oh my God. I mean, it really sounds like a very interesting project, um, which is kind of why my ears perked up um but yeah no I mean this all sounds really great and um like I said before like all the best with the with the book edits um it's it's going to be great It's, it's such an interesting book and having read your dissertation I just yeah I can't wait to see um see it transition into a into a book and um well for or maybe I I don't know if I mentioned this earlier but the book is under contract with Temple University Press so that's really exciting Kate and you know, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, this has been such a fun conversation, such an interesting conversation. And I've learned so much as I always do, uh, while talking to you. And I really appreciate you taking time out, um, and engaging with me today and all the best with, <laughs> uh, with teaching. I know that uh, teaching starting soon in a week and, uh, we'll all get really busy with our lives. Uh, but yeah, all the best with teaching, all the best with writing and,
1: um, thanks for coming on uh, coming on the podcast well thank you so much for having me this was great
0: yeah well take care and stay safe um as as the saying goes nowadays
1: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely stay healthy and safe (laughs) yeah (laughs) thanks